Extraordinary. Leader. Innovative. Integrity. Honest. Courageous. Curious. Thoughtful. Brave. Unafraid. There is a place where technology and art meet, where work and play are one and the same. When the threads of curiosity are pulled in this place, the spark of innovation ripples across industries. Those who make this place their home are giants, titans who pursue creative passion while leaving their mark. Creative. Flexible. Brilliant. Clever. Confident. They are courageous thought leaders set on changing the practice of dentistry and their corner of the world. More than the sum of their parts, we deconstruct the traits that bind these uncommon innovators. Humble, daring, disciplined, playful, principled, spontaneous. To discover what makes them contrary to ordinary, where we explore the extraordinary. Hi there, I'm Dr. Kim Cooch, host and founder at Carry Free. I'm fascinated by what makes the paradigm shifters, world shakers, and art makers tick. Let's embark on a journey. Extraordinary is a place where ordinary people choose to exist. Together, we will trek the peaks of possibility, illuminate the depths of resilience, and navigate the boundless landscape of innovation. To discover how some of the most innovative dentists and thought leaders unlocked their potential and became extraordinary. In this episode, we're going to be talking about something that I think is very cool, lasers. We're also going to be following the journey of how one man has watched them transform the way we do and could do dentistry. The first working laser was operated by Ted Maiman on May 16, 1960 at the Hughes Research Laboratory in California. Maiman may have been the first person to operate a laser, but the theory behind them dates back to Einstein in the early 20th century. He was already thinking about ways to amplify light and its source before we had means to do it. After their pioneering use in the 60s, it didn't take long for medicine to take note and start testing lasers. Today's guest is Bill Brown, who became interested in lasers and their use in dentistry during that pioneering period of engineering history. Bill is one of the last men standing from the early period of lasers and their use in dentistry, and he's seen a lot of change over the years. But let's go back to Bill's idyllic childhood in Alabama. I was born in a small town in west central Alabama, York, Alabama. Nice neighborhood. Uh, everybody walked to kindergarten <laughs> holding hands, and uh, it was just a perfect place to grow up. Wonderful uh, summers there, uh, playing kick the can and all of the night games that you hear about on television or you read in a book. It was uh, a wonderful southern childhood. York is a pretty small town. Yeah, 2,000. 2,000 people. And so. shrinking. It was a boom town. It was at the intersection of two, a north-south and an east-west railroad back in the 20s and 30s, and they had a repair shop there, and it was a big railroad town, uh -huh. and the intersection of two uh, highways, Highway 11 going between Atlanta and New Orleans, and the north-south going from Mobile north up into Memphis, Tennessee, and on. So uh, crossroads by railroad and by car, which made it very uh, successful in the 30s and 40s. What were you like as a kid, Bill? What was your favorite thing to do as a child? I was actually thinking about that with our grandchildren a few days ago. And I've had a love of science from day one and bi uh -huh. biology, uh, electronics, 
I was building rockets and uh, flying uh, model airplanes and going out to the lakes and collecting frogs and salamanders and, and all different kinds of fish when I was six or seven years old. So would you describe yourself as a curious person then, Bill? I think curiosity is a really good word for me. I've been very curious about how things work, how uh, how uh, animals develop, where they live. Uh-huh. Uh, had lots of pets, birds. I even had a pet sparrowhawk. Oh uh, wow! In in my childhood, sort of sort of semi rural. It was a lot of time out in the woods, collecting animals and uh, bringing them home. Now I know you're a guitar player. When did you start playing guitar? Well. My best friend had left York and gone to Thomasville, Georgia for a few years. And when he came back, his cousin had taught him how to play the guitar. Uh And he had a guitar. And a neighbor whose father played guitar got a guitar. And they asked me if I wanted to play with them. And I had a go-kart, so I sold my go-kart and bought a guitar and an amplifier uh-huh. and uh, be- became the, the third player of the little group. We would listen to songs by the, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones on AM radio. I was the worst of the three players, so they cut off the bottom two strings of my guitar, tuned it down to the key of D, and I played bass in, until we could afford a bass guitar. Then I played bass guitar for the rest of my career. We won the 1967 Battle of the Bands for the state of Alabama, and we went on an airplane, a jet plane, Eastern Airlines, to Atlantic Philadelphia, Atlantic uh-huh. City, New Jersey, and uh, and competed against all the other states. So that's quite an accomplishment. So do you still play guitar then, Bill? Are you still in a band? And I played with a band about a week and a half ago. I showed up with an a 70s twin reverb amplifier and uh-huh. a 71 Stratocaster. <laughs> and they were like, can I play this thing? It was like, this guy's got all this vintage analog stuff. They had all the right. computers and all the fancy setups. And I just had the most basic setup that was uh, used in the 50s and 60s and uh-huh. 70s. And, and they enjoyed playing it and they enjoyed playing with me. Some of my family had never heard me play live with a band. Wow. So they, they were entertained, though, wow. especially the, the 16, 17-year-old. But you also have an extensive guitar collection. I do. I ended up getting a degree in electrical engineering from the University of Alabama and off and on worked as, a, uh, as an engineer. Uh-huh. And so I normally had funds when uh, my starving musician friends were <laughs> a little bit low. So over time, I picked up a, a collection of very early Fender guitars, uh-huh. uh, a few old Martins and a few old Gibsons. But I have virtually every guitar I ever bought or collected, I, I still have. Tell me about who were the most significant mentors to you when you were growing up? The most significant mentors growing in, in my early childhood was my grandmother. My grandmother was very educated. She ran the study club in, in our town and a bridge club and everything. She had a love of books, and she started reading to me when I was three or four, taught me a love of books uh-huh. and, and travel. She and my grandfather were fortunate enough to make several trips to Europe in the 50s, and she brought me back uh, examples from all the countries and would sit there and share uh, the trip on the SS United States uh-huh. uh, luxury liner to to Europe and all the countries. And she uh, just let me know how wonderful the rest of the world was. Uh-huh. So she was very strong in my growing up. And then I had a, 
uh, childhood friend, Wayne Causey, and Wayne was a year older than me, and he and I, we designed um, equipment to make our own hydrogen balloons to release uh, balloons. I remember this is a very small town. Right. We designed and flew rockets. We did all sorts of scientific experiments. We created a, a system using an old amplifier at, at the school and, and sealed beam light bulbs to transmit light and uh-huh. uh, talking in the microphone and reading it across the room with light. So when you think about your mentors, like your grandmother, say, what were a couple of traits that you think about when you think about her? I think we would call it now a researcher. I mean, extensive reading, extensive uh, collections of, of books and encyclopedias and answer, uh, curiosity to answer any kind of question. So she was a curious person as well. Very, very curious and a great cook and a great bridge player. One of my friends mother's was telling us but she and she was in her late 90s she said your grandmother taught us how to you, the kids how to play poker and she <laughs> thought that was the worst thing you could have possibly done to some 10 year old kids yeah. but uh yeah she taught us to play cards in a lot of games she was very good in so in, she spent a lot of time with you a lot of like. time yeah. yeah from the time i was four years old we would go to panama city florida stay at the Seabreeze Hotel, and she'd spend six weeks down there. And I I would be just me and her uh-huh. in this hotel, something she did every year. And so wow. we did that up until I turned 16, and she uh, died of uh, lung cancer. Right. And that sort of terminated it. She was a very, very strong factor in my early life. Bill's grandma sounds like a real character and someone who could encourage and nurture a curious mind like Bill's. You can chart an obvious path from Bill's childhood love of inventing to his eventual career in engineering. But there was one major historical event that inspired Bill more than anything else. It was called Sputnik. Sputnik. So the Boy Scouts, we were camping out, and you could look up in the sky and see Sputnik come across there in the space race, and the Russians were ahead of us. And uh, we were already building radios and, like I said, hydrogen balloons and other rockets as kids. And so to me, getting involved in technology and in rockets and space was going to be my future. Yeah, I remember also growing up during the 60s and and Sputnik and then the whole space race and NASA. And that was such a big, important part of our childhood. No, you're exactly right. And and when I went to engineering school, there was a lot of people in engineering just like me that were totally fixated on, on technology and the space race and wanting to contribute for America any way we possibly could. You know, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, but that played an important role probably for, like you said, for a lot of people to encourage them and led them into a path in engineering. Would you describe yourself as a lifelong student? Yes. As of today, I'm still studying. Right now, I'm I'm studying laser physics Uh at a level that my professors would be very surprised to know that I'm, I'm at 75 years old studying laser physics, but I've always studied and read. I read two to three books a week. So you left Alabama then, a degree in electrical engineering. So where'd your path go next then? 
It was interesting. My mother was really on me. I had a degree in electrical engineering, and I was playing in a band and uh-huh. s- sleeping all day and staying up all night. And uh-huh. she wanted me to get a real job. And so I finally got a job as an engineer on the Tennessee Tom Beebe Waterway Project during the Carter administration. I went from there as my first real engineering job to Johnson Controls and worked my way from being a basic engineer, electrical engineer at Johnson Controls to the engineering manager uh, for building automation. And we did things like the Birmingham Civic Center, the School of Optometry, and the School of Dentistry in Birmingham, uh, all the building automation under Johnson Controls. So what happened? Where'd you go from there then? It's an interesting uh, fork in in my life. Uh I was making like $28,000 a year. And I asked my boss, how do you make more money? And he said, well, those guys, and he pointed over to a a sales engineer. And Uh I said, those guys, they have a corporate credit card and a company car, and they make more money than me as the engineering manager for the whole South area. And he said, yeah, I said, I want to be a sales engineer. And so I did a pivot from electrical engineering to sales engineering and started, and I was being very successful with Johnson Controls in the Southeast. And one day... There was an ad in the paper for a California company looking for sales engineers. And my goal had for a long time had been to get to California and enjoy some of that uh, lifestyle. And so I ended up going to joining this company in California, uh, still living in Birmingham. And it turned out to be founded by Louis Alvarez, the Nobel Prize winner. And uh-huh. it was a, a company he had founded with a number of his uh, graduate students. So next thing you know, I'm in Berkeley, California, working in a company founded by a Nobel Prize winner. And so wow. that was sort of the big, that was the big transition. How do you as a person deal with like challenges when they come up in your life? I would say I depend on my faith. Growing up in a very strong church family, my father was a very strong leader in, in the church and a pure Southern gentleman. So I, I trusted a lot in my faith in, in solving some difficult problems, and I've been through some difficult ones in my life. But uh, I would say faith and then research, uh-huh. uh, especially uh, medical issues. I'm, I consider myself almost a doctor from hanging out with you for all these years <laughs> and, and all the medical things, but uh-huh. uh, I've gifted it to be able to read clinical research papers and, and connect all of that. Like many people, Bill finds comfort and guidance in his faith. He also takes the time to read and research, problem-solving and facing challenges head-on. Bill has always had an energy that's infectious. He's enthusiastic about so many different things. Is it this drive that makes him extraordinary? Bill still isn't sure. So I didn't consider myself extraordinary, but here I am, uh, a boy from a town of 2000 in rural Alabama, one of the poorest counties in in the United States. Here I am working for a company founded by a Nobel Prize winner in Berkeley, California in the late 70s. And my boss, who was a mentor later in life, Uh the guy who took the chance to recruit a person from, from Alabama all the way to come to California, he love the word extraordinary. And he wanted me to work extraordinary into our marketing materials at the company. And that was the first time I became really 
involved with the word extraordinary and started relating that. It's been a theme in my life and fortunate enough to meet extraordinary people like you and John Coyce, but also some of the inventors of, of lasers over my career. I got to meet some of the uh, known, acknowledged geniuses in the laser field and some very, very extraordinary people. But I st- in, I guess it was 1970. Eight had to work with the word extraordinary, uh-huh. and at that point, it expanded my my understanding and in my appreciation of extraordinary people and yeah. and the word and trying to apply that to my life. So then your your career shifted somewhere there in the eighties, and you got involved in lasers, right? So we were uh, at Humphrey Instruments and the subsequent company that I worked for. We we were doing ophthalmic diagnostic instruments. This is where you measure the pressure in the eye, the shape of the eye, the length of the eye for doing uh, interocular lenses, and even the refraction of the eye and measuring the uh, refraction of eyeglasses, for instance. Uh-huh. And sort of aligned with that was the very first lasers were coming out for treating diabetic retinopathy. So uh, I transitioned from the company that was doing ophthalmic instruments to ophthalmic lasers. And I was able to do that right in 1980, and I've been in lasers ever since. It's interesting you're talking about those ophthalmic instruments, right? And today, like, that's just normal stuff, right? I mean, you go to your optometrist or your ophthalmologist, and they have all these array of all this technology, and it's just like, well, yeah, that's just standard, and, you know, everybody has that, and it's just normal, but... In the 80s, I mean, that stuff was cutting edge. I mean, that it didn't exist. You're exactly right. So in 1978, let's say, everything optically was mechanical. Like you, if you've got the thing called the ferropter where you click, click you put, right. put it in front of your eyes, you right. go click, click, click. <laughs> yeah. uh, all of that, we automated that. We automated measuring the, the curvature of the eye. We sat down with a group and said, what all can you do to an eye from a diagnostic standpoint? Well, you can measure the curve. You can measure how long it is. You can look at the pressure. It was wonderful. And over about a 10-year period of time, we developed equipment, automated equipment to do that. The first microprocessor came out at the same time. We were able to basically computerize all of the ophthalmic diagnostic equipment Uh that was in the world. Over about a 10-year period of time. And then you got into lasers, and then you got into lasers and dentistry. That's an interesting story. So I was working with Argonne lasers for for treating uh, diabetics that are having uh, vision problems called diabetic retinopathy. And a professor from the University of Utah calls and says, did you know that your laser will cure composite in 10 seconds? I said, that's great. What's composite? <laughs> it turns out, it, as you can explain, it's a material that they use to fill the, the space when you remove a cavity. That got us involved into dentistry with our argon lasers. And then a few months later, I had this dentist call me up wanting to buy one of our thalamic lasers for dentistry. It happened to be Dr. Kim Cooch. <laughs> We met, I guess, 1990, 1991, uh-huh. and we've been friends, and uh, I've been in dentistry full-time pretty much since then. I was going to say, Bill, you know, looking at lasers and dentistry, and so that's been like 30, I think it got marketing clearance in 1990 for the first laser in dentistry. And I mean, I look at all the people that I know 
and have known in laser dentistry it's developed over the last 33 years and you're like the like one of the original people and you're still standing like you're the last man standing finishing the marathon there and lasers in dentistry our goal my goal and our goal, mutual goal has always been to make lasers standard of care in dentistry and we're the closest we've ever been with lasers for treating pain, for treating wounds, accelerating wounds, as well as doing uh, root canals and periodontal treatment. It's come a very long way. It doesn't hurt most cases. There's no bleeding. It's painless for most children. I would never have a drill touch the tooth of a child if it was if I could get this word out. It's it's a wonderful. Right. My daughter is thirty something years old, and she's never had a drill touch a tooth. That's such an amazing technology. I just look back early on in my career with lasers, and I, I remember even saying this to a newspaper who was interviewing me. I was like, oh, every dentist will have one of these in 10 years. And I literally couldn't imagine a dentist or a hygienist practicing without laser technology like 33 years ago, right? I just couldn't imagine going to work and not having that available for all the advantages that you talk about. And, you know, here we are 33 years later, and, and I don't know what percent of dental practices in the United States have lasers or use them. I know it's grown a lot, but uh, it still has a long ways to go, I think, right? Well, about 40% of the dentists in the U.S. use uh, soft tissue lasers for control bleeding when they were developing a crown. Mm-hmm. Or treating gum disease. Gum, gum disease and yeah. whitening teeth, some things like that. The all tissue lasers that can do cavities, that can do root canals and do, let's call it dental surgery. Those lasers, there's is only 10% penetrated in the United States out wow. of 200,000 dentists. The widespread use of lasers in dentistry may still be far off but I'm hopeful that pioneers like Bill will continue to learn and push their use. So what does Bill see as his proudest achievement? I've sort of been on the downhill for the last uh, 30 years, but uh -huh. uh, early in my career in the diagnostic uh, equipment business, some a couple of friends and a, and a doctor, uh, we developed a device to detect glaucoma and uh, brain tumors, certain pituitary brain tumors, for four or five years before there would be any uh, physical damage. What I did was I expanded the field of vision and I created, uh, with LED technology, an area of high pathological significance which had uh -huh. never been done. And it allowed us to, one, develop a device that could be used by not only uh, trained ophthalmologists, technicians, but uh, even for op optometrists and their staffs. And we detected brain tumors that could have been terminal to patients. And we were able to diagnose glaucoma years before the, the person would have a vision loss. In glaucoma, once you lose your field of vision, uh, you can never get it back. Right. So. Uh, to co-invent that device was uh, and especially designed the, the field of vision to detect the losses or sensitivity of the retina to light. I think that was probably the most beneficial to mankind of, right. of what I did. Oh, that's awesome, Bill. What would you consider like your greatest challenge? I had an opportunity at 27 to go to medical school. Uh-huh. And... I made a decision not to do that under the advice of the local doctor 
who was very down on on the commercialization of, of medicine and didn't think it was going to be any fun uh-huh. in, in 10 years. And he sort of talked me out of going to medical school at 27. That's my, my biggest regret. The advice I would tell me that would have made things a lot easier is to not be afraid to make a decision and stand by it. Not be indecisive and not be afraid to take a new career, not be afraid to move to another city outside of your comfort zone, and don't allow a challenge to limit you in where you want to go with your goals. You hear it from the athletes a lot when they get drafted to the NFL. You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. If you focus on it and you prepare for it and you don't let the distractions or other external factors stop you, you can pretty much accomplish anything you want to in your life. I think that a lot of people, for many, many reasons, allow themselves to go to status quo instead of taking that next step. And I think they end up at a, a later age regretting that they didn't move. My parents had an opportunity to move to a new city, and my dad felt he had, for family reasons, he needed to stay. My mother never forgot that they had had a chance to move to a bigger city and with more opportunities for her children's education or things like that. So I I think that, that making that decision, if you know it's right, you think it out, and you just have to say, is this the best thing for my, my future, right. for my family, where I want to go? Hindsight is twenty twenty, And sometimes the decisions we make are the best we can do with the information we have at the time. All we can hope to do is do our best in the future. In his book, The Comfort Crisis, Michael Easter comes to the conclusion that we, as modern people, need to go out of our way to push ourselves. We need to do one major thing each year that really pushes us out of our comfort zone. We should do this to break out of the convenient routines of modern life. I think this is great advice and something that Bill has done a lot in his life. This makes me wonder, what makes Bill tick nowadays? Does he still push himself like he used to? I think that Once I got involved in medical, optical, Uh dental, the underlying goal was to make the world better. And knowing that you're working for a company or with a team that is trying to improve, take the pain out of root canals, minimize the failure rates of root canals to help people keep their teeth for their lifetime. Once I got into the, the medical area, then that is a career and trying to reinforcement and positive feeling that you know that every day when you go to work you're you're trying to help mankind for the future i mean i have a vision of of a child never having to have a cavity treated with a drill what kind of things keep you up at night now not anything really keeps me up at night <laughs> <laughs> too, too much i i uh, I have a, a reputation for being able to sleep anywhere on a plane, in a storm, uh-huh. or just about any type situation. But as far as my overall concerns, it's just for the success and safety of, of my family. Uh huh. So they're first. I hear that as a theme. You're 75. What kind of goals do you have for the rest of your life? What, what are your plans? Well, I want to share 
a lot of my favorite countries with my wife. Uh-huh. Uh, Israel, for instance, I really want to take her to Israel. Wanted to see the pyramids. A number of countries, uh, Hong Kong. Uh-huh. Uh, so travel with with there to leave a, a heritage with my grandchildren, so that they can appreciate my life pattern and anything I can do to help guide them and uh, to stay alive as long as I can so I can watch these grandchildren grow up. What kind of things do you do for fun now? Play music, as we've talked about. I hunt pigs and uh, white-tailed deer, Uh and I fish almost every day that is humanly possible from a weather standpoint. I have a boat about 100 yards from where we're sitting right now, uh-huh. and the canopy's off of it, and it's ready to go into the water at a moment's notice. So those have been kind of consistent hobbies throughout your life. As you're graduating, they make you put a CV together, and I looked under other activities beyond electrical engineering, and it was church activities, reading, Alabama football, fishing, and hunting, and music. Looking back, I was sharing that with my daughter, and... I don't think your dad's changed very much since since he was 21 years old in terms of, of passions. My dad told me, my parents both, you can accomplish anything, do anything in your life as long as you're willing to work hard enough to earn it. I'll see a parent tell a child, you'll never be good at that, or you're no good at that, or you'll never amount to anything, you'll never accomplish anything, or or you won't be able to because of this or because of that. And And I always think like, what a horrible thing to say to a child, to like limit them in their own mind when you look at how important it is to mentors that we've had in our lives that have expanded our lives because they were able to see things that we didn't see in ourselves. We have that right now with the grandson where he was not as successful in track and field, mm-hmm. a distance runner, as his coach thought he would be. And he, he was not given a lot of re- positive reinforcement. Uh-huh. And internally, he set a new set of goals and started training very, very hard. And when he goes back to college, with his coach, he goes a step function and improved. I mean, just the reinforcement with a new coach and a new area and his internal drive, he was able to hit personal records for all, all of the events he competes in just over the support of a new coach and a new team. Having somebody that believes in you. Right. What a great kind of reinforcement of the role of mentors and then also the power of not backing down from challenges and actually pushing harder, working through that. I mean, what a great life experience, because that applies to every aspect of your life going forward, right? It is a true life lesson. I think his friends are all benefiting from him, let's call it breaking through from being considered, well, at the low end of the team uh-huh. to running in college where he, he's a superstar. And has, he has to be an inspiration to the people around him as well. Absolutely. It's great to hear that Bill's grandson is getting the encouragement he needs. I think there are a lot of kids out there that just need some positive words to help them reach their potential. As we near the end of our conversation, I wonder, what could Bill share about himself that other people probably don't know? So I had a, a mild case of polio back in you know, right 1954, 55, 56. Right, and that was a big thing. I mean, we don't, you know, we've been just come out of COVID. <laughs> right. Out of this pandemic, which I think was really a, a traumatizing experience 
even for the people who didn't get COVID, the mental health issues and the PTSD and stuff that we as a society kind of went through and maybe are still feeling some pretty strong effects from, we tend to think of that as like, well, that was a one-off. That was kind of about the time I was born, like in the early 50s. And I remember hearing about it. I remember getting the polio vaccine, which is one of the first widespread vaccines in the, you know, in the history of mankind. Right. It started really, President Roosevelt hid the fact that he had polio from the public for his four terms Uh as president. And it was not anything that was, say, socially acceptable. Uh-huh. It was. Yeah. There were children during that period of time were on iron lungs, right? That uh, if you remember the old iron lung oh, yeah. machine and everything, it, it was horrible. And the salt vaccine, you know, pretty much eradicated it for us. It was it was a wonderful development. And yeah. you know, the parallel I hadn't thought about that, but the parallels with COVID are are definitely there. And I can remember my best friend as a child, Ole Anderson, who later became a physician. His mother had had polio, and she was pretty wheelchair-bound. I mean, she could maneuver some with crutches, but she was pretty physically limited. And, and so that kind of made an impact, certainly on me as, as well, as that like polio is real, and I know people that have had it. It was a very life-changing or even life-threatening disease, right? And that was a huge epidemic in the 50s. So, you know, we go through these things and I think they're, they've probably been with us from the beginning of time and different diseases will be with us. You know, new ones will pop up as we continue. I totally agree. We yeah. just have to be prepared and trust science to, to help us deal with it. What makes you tick, Bill? I have no idea. I do believe when you start talking about uh, extraordinary people and people who have uh, accomplished a lot in their lives, I think it's a gift from God. Uh-huh. And I think you you have it. My wife has it. Our children, thankfully, have it. And uh, it's an energy, and you can be in a uh, a group, and somehow you just have more energy than everybody else. And it's definitely a God given. Well, that's a beautiful answer, Bill. What anything else? You know, this has been just an amazing interview, and I really want to thank you for spending this time with us and sharing your ideas and thoughts uh, about life and your life story and things that were important to you. Anything else you want to add today? Well, I think my main passion and why I'm still working is uh, to try to improve dentistry. And Uh I think that everybody should send their children to a dentist who has a laser for treating their cavities. They should go themselves for if they've got uh, root canal, need root canals or periodontal treatment. It's important that we utilize the technologies that have been developed over the last 15 or 20 years, whether it's detecting breast cancer or treating cavities or preventing cavities. We need to do that, and we owe it to our children to, to give them the best possible medical care. Where do you think AI is going to go, and where do you think the role of AI is maybe in medicine and dentistry? Do you have any thoughts where we're going to be five, ten years from now? 
I'm very, very excited for the use of AI to eliminate mistakes. I think if, if the AI is given all the data, all, all of your health characteristics, your DNA, your family history, is, if it's got all the information in terms of diagnosing, it is going to really help detect cancer at an early stage, similar to what my visual devi- uh, fields device did right, back, in, back in the 80s with glaucoma. I think uh, if we can detect and diagnose and then hopefully treat with things like vitamin uh, and light uh, in, instead of uh, prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can overcome things with, with exercise and all the things that we hear about that are good for us right. that, that we, sh- we should be doing. I think the AI is going to improve that tremendously. Right now, we're looking at using AI to uh, identify decay at a very early stage, maybe that you never have to have uh, your cavity surgically treated. I'm excited to see the AI applications in medicine be very, very life-changing. And I hope that we can put together the controls to keep it from the dark side. Well, it's going to take an, an engineer, genius, passionate person like yourself to, to make that happen, Bill. So thank you so much for spending your time and today and, and sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, Bill, I really appreciate it. And I know that everybody enjoyed hearing your story. Thank you, Kim. I enjoyed uh, sharing and I look forward to a few more years out here uh, on the frontiers of uh, laser dentistry. It's so exciting to see someone like Bill who is there right at the beginning optimistic about the future of lasers and dentistry. They might not be a mainstay in dentistry yet, but I hope people like Bill inspire the next generation to try something new and challenge the status quo. Thank you so much to my guest, Bill Brown, for your passion and enthusiasm for the field. And thank you for coming on this journey with me today. Around here, we aim to inspire and create connections. We can't do it without you. If this conversation moved you, made you smile, or scratched that little itch of curiosity today, please share it with the extraordinary people in your life. And if you do one thing today, let it be extraordinary. Extraordinary.